word of the Lord from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 20. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The word of the Lord. Amen. You guys may be seated. As you take your seats, let's pray together. Our great God, this morning we're gathered in the name of your son, Jesus. We're gathered in his name because we believe that he is the Messiah and the Savior and the one to redeem your people. We come in his name because we hope in him. We come in his name because we believe he has cleansed us from our sin. We come in his name because we believe that our salvation and our forgiveness and our acceptance before you is only because of him. This is why we come, O oh God, and we come needing to hear from your word. So Lord, help us, we pray. Teach us, we pray. Mold us, O oh God, mold us. Let us be those who hear and are changed. Let us be those who hear and respond in faith. We pray because of Jesus. Amen. Friends, it's so good to see you all this morning. If you haven't done so, please take your Bible. Turn to the book of Matthew, chapter 18. Matthew, chapter 18. Here at Redeemer, we are studying our way through the book of Matthew. And, and today we come to this passage, which Lori just read for us. Um, I, I've entitled this sermon, Reconciled Rather Than Shamed. And the reason we've entitled it Reconciled Rather Than Shamed is because understanding this passage rightly is vitally important. What Jesus is concerned about in this passage is that his people fight for, hit for one another to walk in his ways. What Jesus is saying is the gathered body of his disciples will not take sin lightly and the gathered body of his disciples will labor earnestly to help those, to encourage those, to awaken those who are struggling in sin. So the goal of this passage is for those who are wayward from the Lord to be repentant and reconciled to the Lord. For those who are separated from the church of the Lord to be repentant and be reconciled to the people of the Lord. The goal of this is a true love that wants good for one another. That's the goal. And so often this particular passage stirs anger and condemnation in the people of God. And so before we get into the, the linguistic, what does it say, let's start with the emotion. It's rare that I 
fight that way. But today, let's start with the emotion. The emotion is a love for one another that's willing to lean into hard conversations and hard truth for the good of those who are separating themselves from the Lord. Everybody, like the goal is a love that pursues and a love that cares. And you might say, okay, well, why can you say that so definitively, pastor? Let's go back just a few verses. Verse 12. Jesus says, what do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father in heaven that any of these little ones, Jesus' metaphor for people of faith, should perish. So what Jesus is saying is his heart and the heart of his Father is to seek those that are lost from the flock to go after in love and in pursuit. And so before we dive into the nuances of this passage, let's get our hearts right. Let's understand that as the people of Jesus, redeemed by Jesus, our calling is not just to do what he says, but to seek by faith to do what he says in the way with the heart that he would do it, okay? So, so I'm pleading with you to hear this from a, from a position, I believe that Jesus utters it. Um, so let's look closely at what the passage says. But here, here's, the, here's the, the punch. The church of Jesus cannot ignore the open, continual, unrepentant, cannot ignore open, continual, unrepentant sin among its people. The church of Jesus cannot Ignore open, continual, unrepentant sin among its people. You want to cut against a cultural tide, just share this sermon. We're going to stand here as kindly and lovingly as we can. So what's Jesus talking about? This is our first point if you're taking notes this morning. Sins against dot, dot, dot. The dot, dot, dot's important here. Look at verse 15. If your brother sins against you, this is the context. If your brother sins against you. Now, the emphasis here is sin and not you, okay? The emphasis is a a pattern of sin, not hurting my feelings, not having a mild disagreement about where the swing set should go on the property line, not wishing you would have invited me to your dinner fellowship, not wishing that you would have whatever. Like the emphasis here is on sin and obedience to God. The emphasis is not on how we It's not about interpersonal discussions. I do think interpersonal discussions matter, but the emphasis here is on sin. How might I know that? Well, we keep finding older and older manuscripts of the Gospel of Matthew. And you know what the older ones don't have in them? Against you. What they say is, if your brother sins. But the idea is, is that your brother or sister is in a pattern of sin that is known among, that is known to you. If you know of the pattern of sin by your brother or sister. So Jesus is talking about 
open, continual patterns of sin within the Christian community. This is what Jesus is talking about. Open, continual patterns of sin within the Christian community. And by the way, sin, there's a difference between sin and being like me, okay? So perhaps I have some freedoms to do some things that you don't share, but the Bible doesn't explicitly speak either way. That's not a sin issue, that's a freedom issue. Jesus isn't talking about freedom issues. Perhaps your family prefers a particular approach to being family that's a little different than mine. Unless we can point to chapter and verse about explicit sin, that's not what Jesus is talking about. We can still have a good conversation. We can still disagree in love. We can still help one another and challenge one another. But Jesus is talking about open, continual rebellion against God. Open, Continual rebellion against God. So many of the things that churches fight about and churches split over and churches throw things at one another over don't fall into this category of open rebellion against God. So the scripture says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength in your neighbor as yourself. If someone is openly, continually worshiping another God, that is sin. Scripture says, do not lie. If someone is openly, continually lying and avoiding the truth, that is sin. The Scripture says, do not commit adultery, If someone is openly, continually committing adultery, they are walking in this type of sin. Okay, that's good, Jamie, but is the the sin against me or is it against something else? And just note this, all sin by definition is committed against God. All sin by definition is committed against God. Most sins involve others, which means that most sins are against God because all sin is against God and involve others. But here's the principle that Jesus is setting up. If your brother sins against you, what's he speaking about? A sin your brother or sister is committing that you are aware of. A sin that your brother or sister is committing that you are aware of. And I believe this is where this passage is moving. If you are aware of the sin of a brother or sister, you have a responsibility to care for your brother and sister by talking to them about their sin. I'll say that one more time. If you are aware of the sin of a brother or sister, you have a responsibility to care for your brother or sister by talking to him or her about his or her sin. Man, that's a lot of him or hers. But you're with me. If you're aware of the sin of a person who is a Christ follower, you have a responsibility to care for that person by talking to that person about that person's sin. Or a shorter way to say it is this. Blind eyes are not 
caring. Blind eyes are not caring. Turning a blind eye to someone who is in open rebellion against God is not caring for that person. It's not caring for the body of Christ. It's not caring for the glory of God. Turning blind eyes is not an act of caring. So Jesus is talking about open sin, open rebellion against God. What does he desire from the person who is in open rebellion against God? What is his desire? This pushes us to our our second point. Listen and respond. Jesus is going to lay out three levels of interaction with a person in open rebellion against God. But the desire is for the person to listen and respond accordingly. Let's, let's, just, let's just read it. And I want you to listen for the word listen. Pun not intended. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. So what's Jesus' goal? That a person who is in rebellion against God would hear that they are in rebellion, understand why they are in rebellion, and respond with appropriate repentance and faith and obedience. That's the goal. That's the goal. And, And the repetition of the verb listen, 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 this is the goal. Which, let me just skip to the end. If the goal is for somebody to listen, that really ought to shape how we approach them, correctly? Shouting, bludgeoning, hurling insults and accusations is not a great way to get someone to listen. If that's news to you, come talk to me after the service. We'll have interpersonal communication 101. Confrontation on social media is probably not the way to get someone to listen. Dare I say, in writing, if at all possible, is probably not the way to have someone listen. It's face-to-face, it's eye contact, it's encouragement, it's longing. Like, Like, emotion comes through in interpersonal communication. And I believe that when we are challenging in this way, the desired outcome needs to be very clear. Listen and respond. Listen and respond. And now what Jesus does is he tells the church how to respond in these situations where a brother is in sin and we have knowledge of it. What do we do? First, he says, you go to your brother And tell him his fault between you and him alone. Go to your brother, 
and tell him his fault between you and him alone. I think we could say this. Jesus' main goal is repentance and reconciliation. There's a secondary unfolding of keeping the sphere of knowledge as small as possible. Go to your brother and tell him alone. Now, friends, this point requires a level of gumption that many of us just don't have. We'll talk about people behind their backs. We'll get in small group and we'll phrase gossip in the form of a prayer request. Like, I'd really like it if you'd pray for the Mosleys because I've heard that that, 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 that husband is really hard-headed and it's really taken a toll on his, his family. But this is like evangelical Christianity 101. By the way, I am hard-headed. I was hit in the head twice yesterday with a baseball and here I stand. I was told that one of them sounded like it had hit concrete, but I digress. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. And guess what? The matter is complete. It's over. Like this is the the most desired outcome. If I am in a pattern of unrepentant sin is that you come to me We talk, I say, oh my goodness, I had no idea. I repent, help me repent, and no one knows that we ever talked. That is the desired outcome because God gets the glory, redemption wins, and the church isn't torn apart by innuendo and accusation. But Jesus calls us to something that takes a level of gumption, a level of conviction, a level of love, a level of longing. Go to the person. Go to the person. Go to the person. Let me ask you one question. Have you ever villainized someone over something? Yes, you have. So when you have villainized someone over something, have you ever come to a point maybe two months later or three months later or six months later where you were kind of forced by circumstance into an interaction with that person and you thought to yourself, man, I wish I would have talked to him face-to-face a long time ago. He's not that terrible of a person. Anybody besides me ever experienced that? Yeah, yeah. Jesus knows that. That's why he gives us these commands. Verse 16, but if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, I think what Jesus is doing here is two things. One, he's he's clearly not assuming that the person bringing the accusation of sin is always correct. Let me say that again. Jesus is clearly not assuming that the person bringing the accusation is always correct. Hence, two or three witnesses. Also, he's setting up meeting the standards of truthfulness laid out in the Mosaic Law Code that would have been very well known among these Jewish folks. Where charges were brought based upon the witnesses of two or three people. And so Jesus is saying, like, if, if the person won't listen to you, go with them Go to them again with two or three witnesses. And and the purpose of these two or three witnesses is to be present, to listen, to elevate truth, 
to highlight truth, and to push these two believers to, toward a place of obedience to God. So if you go to someone in their sin and they will not listen to you, Jesus says, take one or two others along with you. I would say take one or two people who have proven to be very level-headed, very wise, very quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. That's from James. And prayerfully go, again, seeking the restoration and the reconciliation of your brother. Now, let me say this. In a healthy church... I believe these one-on-one interactions and these taking two or three with you interactions should be happening all the time. And, and I don't think the pastor or the elders or your community group leader or your Sunday school teacher even have to know that these things are going on. The goal is for people to follow Jesus And the goal was for the church to not make peace with rebellion against God. Probably wouldn't surprise you to hear that I and our pastors and our elders spend most of our days in these one-on-one and one-on-two-or-three encounters again and again and again, and you never hear about them because the Spirit does at work, and there is repentance, and there is clarity, and there is reconciliation, and the Lord gets the glory, and the church is unified, and things are the way they're supposed to be, sometimes. Verse 17, if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses even to listen to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Now, before I even begin to explain this verse, I want you to underline it. I'm saying to you the very words that Jesus is saying. I'm saying to you the very words that Jesus is telling me to say to you. And I'm not being mystical when I say Jesus is telling me to say them to you. I'm being very clear because they're right there. If someone is in such sin that they won't listen to a brother, they won't listen to two or three then the church needs to be notified of this pattern of continual, unrepentant sin. I would say at Redeemer, the appropriate way to tell it to the church would be to tell it to one of our pastors or one of our elders who will then begin to work all of this forward. I'm not sure that standing up and announcing things in the middle of the nine o'clock service while it's being broadcast on Facebook Live is exactly the right way forward. But I would say, if you have church leaders that are sweeping stuff under the rug and not dealing with it, you might need to stand up on a Sunday morning and make an announcement because the church of Jesus cannot make peace with open rebellion against Jesus among its people. So Jesus says, take it to the church. Again, what's the goal? That the the brother or sister continuing in sin would listen to the witness of the church. That the brother or sister caught in sin would listen even 
to the word of the church. Now, do you guys know what the word self-deception means? Do you know what that means? It means to be self-deceived. It means to not see reality. People who are stuck in rebellion against God, are there's a self-deception going on there. And this one-on-one warning, this bring up two or three warning, this warning from the church, the purpose of it all is for there to be clarity and awareness and repentance and change. Jesus keeps going and he says, but if the brother refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And what Jesus is is saying through metaphor here is the church can no longer give a continually unrepentant, open rebel against God the affirmation of belonging to Christ because of this continual open behavior that conveys a heart of hardness toward the word of God. And so when Jesus says, let them be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector, he's saying, no longer treat them as a part of the community of faith. No longer treat them as a part of the community of faith. Why? For shame? No. To get the last word? No. For condemnation? No. To shake loose self-deception. To awaken someone to their rebellion so they will return to the Lord. And don't forget what's coming in verses 21 through 34 excuse me, through 35, is a parable about how the people of Jesus should be the quickest to forgive. Forgiveness and reconciliation is the goal. But the purity of the church seems to matter much to Jesus. So Jesus says if someone is caught in sin, with the goal of them listening and responding, go to them. If they won't listen, take two or three with you. If they still won't listen, Take it to the church. Guys, I just want to be really clear. I don't read these three steps playing out in one Sunday morning, okay? Like, I don't read these three steps playing out in rapid succession like it would in a movie. I read them playing out over periods of time, over periods of of appeal, over periods of please consider, please consider, please consider. But at the end of the day... Every congregation is going to come to to a point, to a line in the sand where we have to decide, will we obey verse 17? Will we tell someone that their continual open rebellion against God seems to convey a heart that's not softened toward the word and the will and the ways of God and is not consistent with a disciple of Jesus even to the point that we might be willing to remove them from the community of the faithful. When Jesus says, let him be to you as a Gentile and tax collector, I think what he's saying is, this person at this time needs to be removed from the community of the faithful. Forever? No. 
for repentance. Repentance and reconciliation remains the goal. This pushes us to our last point. I'm calling it true unity. Verses 18 and 19 and 20 are a little complex and a little misused. But they're in here, so we're going to read them. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two or three agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Now this doesn't mean if you can just get two people to go in a room with you and ask God for something, he's morally bound to give it to you. That's not what it means. Jesus is speaking within this context of the purity of the church. This passage is very, very consistent with chapter 16, verse 19, where Jesus was speaking to Peter and he said, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. These are the only two places in the book of Matthew where the word church appears. And what Jesus is saying is this. He's not saying that churches determine the eternal destiny of people. Christ does that. But what he's saying is that when one is spiritually united to Christ, they also will be spiritually and tangibly united to the body of Christ. And so in the church, when we're welcoming new believers, we're not saying, oh, it's cool that this family wants to be a part of our club. We're glad they chose us over the club down the road because we're a little bit better. We're actually a little smug and superior here at Redeemer. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is this person professes faith in Jesus. This person has identified with Jesus through baptism. This person is asking us to help them follow Jesus in the real here and now. And their connection to this body is symbolic of their spiritual connection to Christ. Therefore, if someone is evidencing the fruits of being disconnected from Christ, then what Jesus is saying is the body should no longer yield them that connection. Why? For awareness. For awareness. So the true unity of the church takes seriously the work that we're doing here as church. It takes seriously the idea that what you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and what you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Austin's going to announce this in just a minute, but in the second service, we're going to celebrate baptism this morning. Uh, Baptism of uh, a young lady named Anna Chapman. Anna's in her early 20s. And those of you that were in that college group last summer, y'all need to hang around, like stay for the beginning of the next service because I've read her testimony and it celebrates what God did through y'all's group. So you need to stay. Um, if it wouldn't be heretical, I would add, thus saith the Lord, but I can't do that because that'd be heresy. Um, but I kind of want to. Um, but when we baptize Anna today, we're not saying, oh, yay, Anna wants to love Jesus. What we're saying is, Anna has confessed faith in Christ and she's devoting her life to him and she wants us to help us help her follow Jesus. That's what we're saying. That's what we're doing. And and, and so so hear this. 
So if you're baptized into a congregation, what you're, one thing you're saying without saying is if I run away from Jesus, I need you to come after me. What you're saying is if I'm in open rebellion against Jesus, I need somebody here to tell me. I say this to parents all the time when they bring um, little Johnny or little Sue to be baptized. Like, I, There's nothing more joyful than celebrating conversion amongst all of our, and there's a bunch of them, little Johnnies and little Sues. But I just remind parents in that baptism conversation, like, hey, when we baptize your son, your work's not over, it's just beginning. Now you have a brother in Christ that you need to disciple. And when we baptize your son, what you're ultimately asking us to do is when he's 19, or excuse me, when he's in ninth grade and gets his first girlfriend and just wants to play around with rebellion, it's not playing around with rebellion. It's rebelling against Jesus. And you're saying, I want you to hold my, my ninth grade son accountable for that. You see, because Jesus has given to the church the power of the keys. He's given to the church the power to bind and to loosen, which means to identify the fruits of what God's doing in the real and in the here and now. So true unity in a church is not warm fuzzies toward one another. True unity in a church is having a faith in Jesus that pulls us away from sin and rebellion and pulls us toward obedience and faith and service and joy. And the unified church is the one that spends most of its time pushing one another in that direction. Let me give you a word picture. Austin mentioned VBS earlier. VBS ended at 8 o'clock on, am I getting this right? 8 o'clock? 8 o'clock, you guys were here. Come on, give me a head nod. 8.30. See, I was wrong. VBS ended, that explains why I was frustrated by 8.30, because I was ready to set up and tear down at 8 o'clock. <laughs> but it fits, into the, it fits into the illustration. VBS ended at 8.30. We had two hours to completely flip this building upside down and get it ready for what you're in right now, okay? So at 8.30 on Friday night, there were no chairs in here. All the walls had decoration that looked like Bethlehem. Hey, but the stone, it was right there. It was right there. Fit perfect in, in Bethlehem. Not so much in Hendersonville. So we had two hours to flip this thing around. Do you know what no one in this building was feeling for two hours? There was not a warm, fuzzy one to be had. We were hot. We were sweaty. We were exhausted. Our kids were overtired and obnoxious. But the work had to go on. But what we did have was unity of purpose. We knew what had to be done, and we knew when the work was done, we could all go home and crash. Who took a good nap yesterday? Oh, come on, guys. Okay. Gospel unity is similar. It's not a group of people that like to be together so we can feel good about one another. It's a group of people who are committed to Jesus together. And that's what this passage is ultimately painting a picture of, is a group of people who are so committed to Jesus together that we're willing to have hard conversations about our sin and rebellion. So, I'm going to end with these two statements. Number one, ignoring the sin of God's people for the sake of feeling good about one another is not gospel unity. 
Ignoring the sin of God's people for the sake of feeling good about one another is not gospel unity. Second, overly meddling legalism is not gospel unity. Overly meddling legalism and manipulation is not gospel unity either. Gospel unity is we're so committed to Christ, we'll help one another hear his word and follow him. We're so committed to Christ, we'll help one another learn to turn away from sin and death and turn toward Jesus. We're so committed to Christ, we'll say it again and again and again and again and again with the hope of redemption and reconciliation. The church of Jesus cannot ignore the open, continual, unrepentant sin of anyone among the community. Christ is the answer for those who are in unrepentant sin. So, so what do we do? What if I'm the man? What if I'm the one in the open, continual, unrepentant sin? What do I do? I confess it to the Lord. I plead for the blood of Jesus to cover my sin, and I plead for the Spirit of Jesus to unite me to God and unite me to his people. And the promises of Jesus stand even for those in continual, open, unrepentant sin. We run to Christ together. If you're here today exploring Christianity, that, that's the answer. Whether you realize it or not, your life, apart from Christ, is one big, continual, open pattern of unrepentant sin. And the answer is run to Jesus. So our Father and our God, we pray now that you would take these words and as much as what's been spoken is true, we pray that you would cause us to remember, to believe, to be shaped and transformed. Help us, O oh God, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.